on this episode of 2036, the podcast. People want health care. People want to live. And they're not using a song or Bible verse and say, well, I'm going to use this and I'm not going to come and get treatment. And that has long been an assumption and a myth when it comes to spirituality and religion. It's, oh, they'll pray and they won't come get treatment. Well, they'll come get treatment and pray. Hi, I'm Ken Carter, professor of psychology at Emory University's Oxford College, and I want to welcome you to season three of 2036, the podcast. I'm here with Jill Hamilton. Jill Hamilton is a tenured professor and a senior faculty fellow of social determinants and health disparities at the Nell Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing. She's also an affiliate professor at Candler School of Theology. Her research interests include social determinants of health, health disparities, and the mental health-promoting strategies used among older African Americans and their families in response to life-threatening illness. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you. So you've said that you grew up next door to a church and that you were there every time the church doors were open. How did the influence of church and spirituality inform your career choices and your research interest? So that's an interesting question. And I will start out by saying that We lived next door to the church, and I went to church because that's the only place my daddy would let me go. (laughs) But I will say that my going to church as much as I did growing up didn't really influence my life, or I don't know that it did until I became older, Mm. I think. And then I started thinking back about those Things, those influences to help shape my life and help shape my thinking. Mm-hmm. And I always go back to my church home and being in the church and being around those old saints, I call them, <laughs> and the things that they taught us and they taught us life lessons that we didn't really appreciate mm-hmm. or I didn't really appreciate until I had gotten older and started encountering stressful life situations myself. Can you give me an example of one of those life lessons that sort of sticks in your mind today? Let me just say this. When I was growing up, they always encouraged us to do whatever we wanted to do. They never told us we couldn't do something. I think they taught us scripture and songs with lyrics Mm -hmm. that I can refer back to. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. And just, I think just when I, when I think back, I think the most important lessons were that we believe in you and that you can, and we expect you to. That's, that's amazing. And, and one of the things that you've, uh, that I really want to talk about is this uh, database that you've put together. Yes, a database of songs, prayers, and Bible verses that patients have told you that were meaningful to them. T- tell me all about this database. So let me put it in context. When I first got out of my postdoc and my first faculty position was here at Emory, and I was funded NIH, people were just throwing money at me to study this one thing, social support and African-Americans. But I went to the homegoing service of a colleague, and I had been studying social support among, you know, how families use Uh, their social relationships and what they get from their social relationships to help them endure stressful life events. But I was at this homegoing service, and there was this older man behind me. When it was time for family and friends to go to the mic to say their words of comfort to family, this older man got up, walked to the mic, 
when it got to the mic, instead of saying words, he started singing mm. this song. It was beautiful. I had never heard the song. It was a cappella. He was older. His voice was shaky, but it was strong. Wow. And it was his expression of comfort to the family through a song. And I remember leaving there thinking, this is my work. This is it. And that's how this whole database started. So I got IRB approval, and I just started interviewing people. And once they heard about what I was doing, people started calling me. I got a story. Jill, I got a story. So from the period of 2008 when I started, and I stopped doing these interviews, I'm thinking during COVID, so a couple of years ago, I now have a database of 196 interviews recorded, some of them video, some of them audio. I have a wide range of age groups, ages 18 to 90. And I've written papers, of course, you know, academic journals, peer-reviewed. But my real goal is to get these stories back to the public because mm-hmm. it's a part of our history. Uh, many of those oldest old, the oldest old, they are now deceased and their stories are I think very important yeah. to the next generation. So, if we were to like to interact with the database or listen to it, what would we hear? Like, what are there songs, Bible verses, different things? Um, some people talk about a song and a Bible verse. Some people just talk about a song. Some people just talk about their prayers. Most of the most of the interviews they talk about the story and the song. Mm-hmm. Most of them. And then the second, I would say, would be the Bible verses. But everybody talked about a stressful, what was that stressful life event? Mm -hmm. And how did I use this song? How did I use this Bible verse? How How did I use this? How did I pray? And what this did for me. And I know you're still working through it, but what are some themes that you feel like are emerging from your database? Like, what are you, what are you seeing? Throughout all those interviews, I still have five basic Themes, right? And what we see most in the literature and what I found also is the most frequent theme has to do with songs used for thanksgiving and praise. So meaning I'm going to praise God regardless of what I'm going through. If he brought me through a difficult situation before, he'll do it again. If I saw him do it for my mama, my grandmama, he'll do it for me. I tell everybody the most frequent cited um, song that's used among older African-Americans, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, It Saved the Wrench Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. So that's the that's the most frequent one, and I won't bring you to church. <laughs> <laughs> that's, please do. <laughs> I grew up in the church, too. So those verses, those songs have a really powerful connection with people. And so did you feel that connection when you were interviewing them? Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, when you're doing interviews, the person doing the interviewing needs to be quiet and let the person talk. And I had to go back and redo some of them because they would start singing and I'd start singing with them. Or they start saying the Bible verse and I'd start saying it with them. And I wanted to pull my voice out of it. So they let me come back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and do it again. So what applications do you feel like you find with your, you know, with the database? You know, are there any ways that you can connect this with treatment with other individuals? Yes. I think that the database can be used any number of ways. I think it can be used to educate the next generation. 
on how to think about um, how to use what we're taught when you encounter a stressful life event. But I was funded a couple of years ago, and one use is to show these videos to, say, for example, newly diagnosed cancer patients when psychological distress is really high. And even though people have been taught these songs and Bible verses and they grew up in church, when anxiety levels are especially high, you forget. Mm. And these stories, uh, and I video recorded a lot of them. Um, When I show them, it does several things. Number one, it shows them that people like them can survive this. People that look like them can survive. And it reminds them to go back to their roots, to go back to those songs and Bible verses. And I think a lot of times healthcare providers think that we use spirituality instead of, mm. but they don't. They they use their spirituality to help them endure the treatments that they need to have to get through um, a situation. And do you think this role of spirituality should be explored more for patients? Oh, absolutely. They use it. And a lot of times they'll say to me, well, I have my music going and until I got to the parking garage of the clinic, and then I had to turn it off, I had to go and get my treatment. And then as soon as I get back to my car, then I can turn it back on and listen again. Well, why can't they bring it in there with them? Why are we making them feel like they can't bring it in with them? Now, you're also an affiliate professor at the Candler School of Theology. So how does that work inform your work in the nursing school or vice versa? So let me tell you the story behind that. I had started doing the study to look at religious songs and scriptures. I had started the study. But for me, something was missing. And I wanted to know more about why this was important to the population and what was this whole this whole notion around suffering and spirituality and um, late in my career I started the application with Candler to get my master's in religion and public life I started the application and I said no Jill you're too old you can't do this <laughs> and I remember Dean Love calling me and she says when are you going to finish this application and I said but I'm scared oh gosh <laughs> And she said, well, just, just, just do this, just do this and this, just do this document and this document. And she says, just come on. And um, I was still scared. And I went to my dean, Linda McCauley, and I said, I'm bored. And I said, I feel stagnate. I need to do something to expand my scholarship. I need to learn more about this whole notion around suffering and spirituality. And she said, I think it's a good idea. And when she said it, I'm like, well, okay. So I enrolled in the master's program and started taking classes. And the professors always let me tailor my assignments to fit what I needed, to get what I needed out of it. And so that's how this whole affiliation came about, because I learned, I got to meet faculty in Candler and started working with them as I was enrolled in this master's course. How did the work impact each other? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I learned so much. And I think probably the most important thing that I learned was from one of my professors, Walter Fluker, about the work of Howard Thurman. Mm. 
and how he thought about spirituality and suffering. And it changed the whole way that I think about spirituality that I never would have thought about had I not enrolled in that program. Yeah, I think those connections between what people might think of as very different programs really helps treat the whole person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So among your areas of expertise is a category called social determinants of health. Can you talk more about what that is and how that applies to patients? So social determinants of health, it's been around forever. It's a new wine in an old bottle, I think. (laughs) But for those of us who have been doing the work since forever, Mm. it's been there. So, for example, when we think about the context within which people make decisions around their health, that links us back to social determinants of health, those conditions in where we work, play, worship. But for me, in my work with social determinants of health, I look at those influences around spirituality and social support. And I am wanting to emphasize the, the prevailing narrative around social determinants now is how social determinants are negative influences but they can be positive influences. So they can be strengths as well as weaknesses of a population. So spirituality, things like spirituality, for example, can be a strength. And it's not necessarily a weakness. What are some of the typical determinants that can impact healthcare in negative ways? Yeah, so for example, if we think about where individuals live and their access to care, their access to fresh fruits and vegetables, access to pharmacies where they can get their medications, how difficult is it for them to get transportation to get to the best care? That would be one. Another one might be, of course, we look at income, we look at insurance, we look at um, things like a lot of people looking at health literacy, for example. And then we look at like institutions where they can get access to faith-based churches. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, physical environment, climate change, toxins. Hmm. And another one is what about what happened with COVID? Right. Right. And people not being to access the vaccines or if we put vaccines and have it available in one place. uh, But that didn't necessarily mean that the people that needed it could get to those vaccines. And now you're also looking at some of the positive kinds of things. And you mentioned spirituality. What are some of the other positive social determinants? Family relationships would be definitely a a strength. And that's my my areas of spirituality and social relationships among family and friends. Now, there are ways that healthcare providers can help sort of bring out the best of those positive determinants. I think it would be nice as a start for people to just respect individuals, respect what they believe. Mm. It's not our job to change what they believe, and we certainly can't dismiss what they believe. But just, I think just to start would be nice to just respect individuals. Mm. And if they use something, if they're used to using it, say, for example, if people are used to using a song when they're anxious, right? Help them remember the lyrics to that song. You know, you're not proselytizing to them to do that, right? right. You're just helping them to remember that which. I mean, if, they, if they've already come to you for health care, people want health care. People want to live. And they're not using a song or Bible verse and say, well, I'm going to use this 
and I'm not going to come and get treatment. Right. And that has long been an assumption and a myth about folk mm-hmm. when it comes to spirituality and religion. It's, oh, they'll pray and they won't come get treatment. Well, they'll come get treatment and pray. Right, right. Together. Together. Yeah. yeah. Right. I want to talk about your work as a teacher a little bit. So what is your approach to curricula and teaching? Well, I guess you can tell I love to tell stories. So whenever I'm trying to make a point, I always link it to a story. And people will tend to remember what you're trying to teach them if you tell a good story. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> so that's my one of my approaches. I think, especially with my mentees, PhD students, I think it is our job as faculty to encourage them with their passion and not encourage them to do what we've done because it makes our work easier. Right. But listen to them because they have some wonderful ideas and some wonderful new thinking around things. And if we just, we can learn from them just like they can learn from us. Yeah. And that's been, that's where I am trying to learn from them and encourage them and help them to avoid the pitfalls and the struggles that I had to go through. Just because it was hard for me, I don't have to make it hard for them. Right. And sometimes we talk about this thing I I call the five-year dream, where you bump into a student five years after the last time that you saw them, and they tell you something that they learned in your class, and it makes you feel like you're making a big difference. So, like, what do you want your students to learn most and to practice? Like, what's, what's most important to you? I don't know if this answers your question, but I think what's most important to me for my students is to find their passion. Mm-hmm and find the courage to go after their passion. And it it makes me feel good when I see them living their dream. And also to find balance. Mm -hmm. When I was coming along, you work, 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 work. And then when you get 70, 75, you're done. And then you're ready to go close your eyes and, you know, (laughs) really, right? And you haven't enjoyed life. You haven't developed friendships. You know, some of my former professors, that's all they did was write grants and pubs. And then they end up retired and they have no life. So I want my students to, number one, go after their passion, do that which they love, but have have balance in their life. Yeah, it's so important because it's such a hard job. And so making sure to have that balance. Oh, it's, it's in, you know, you know, everything is all about how many pubs do you have this year? How much money did you bring in? And it's always like, go, 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 go. And you don't take the time to enjoy family and, and have good friends. And then when you retire, if you don't have that, then what do you have? Yeah. I mean, it's so important to be able to instill that in students early on so they can build careers where there's a balance because it not only helps them as a person, it's going to help the patients they work with, it's going to help their coworkers. It, it's a really great way of, of, of really paying it forward in a lot of ways. That, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Now, thinking back to what you teach, like what do you feel like is the most difficult component of nursing to teach and why is it difficult? To be honest, when I try to teach them what I've learned about my work, and that is so amazing because we are nurses and we're supposed to be focused on holistic care. But I think maybe we're trying so hard to be like medicine and public health. And something happened to our profession over the years where we prioritize the biological, the treatment, 
and we have somehow moved away from the holistic care, the spiritual care. And that has been the most difficult. Mm. And so it's great to be at a place like Emory that allows you to be able to combine those things together in a way that it combines together in the person, right? Right. I don't know that I would be able to do this anyplace else, even though I sometimes feel like I'm not respected among my peers, but it doesn't matter. I'm doing what I need to do to help my population ultimately, because ultimately, if I can just convince a handful of students that this is important, and then they can make the care of a patient better than I've done my job. I don't have to reach everybody, you know, and I'm going to leave it at that because I could tell you another story, but I'll leave it at that. So you talked a little bit before about your grandmother's role in your education and your career. Tell me a little bit about your grandmother and how she influenced you. When I was younger, my parents separated, divorced, and I was with my my dad. And I've, I've been trying to find out for years how this came about, that I went to live with my grandmother, and I'll never find out. You know, because they're gone now. Those people are gone. But I went to live with my grandmother. And now when I think back, and I've given this a whole lot of thought lately, and I talked about this at the American Academy of Nursing like three weeks ago about my grandmother and how my grandmother influenced me to be where I am today. My grandmother was a former sharecropper from Thompson, Georgia, right outside of Augusta. And because they had to work in the cotton fields, of course, she could only go to third grade. That's as far as she could go in school because they had to go to work. And as you can imagine, even with that, they could only go like maybe a few months out of the, the winter. But my grandmother was determined that I was going to go to college. And she would always say to me, I couldn't go, but you're going And looking back, even though she couldn't help me herself, she always made sure that there were people around me that could help me. I remember Mr. Arthur Sherrill would come and pick me up one summer and take me to Bible classes. And she just would do things like she would always, for example, when other kids may have had to work after school or do chores, she made me go do my homework. Mm -hmm that kind of thing. And I always knew that if I didn't go, I was going to let her down. And it was instilled in me that I needed to go for her and for people like her, right? And so one of the things I said at the academy when I was a speaker on a panel, I said, you know, this is my grandmother. She's the greatest storyteller ever. But she told a lot of stories. Some of them were true. Some of them were not true to ensure that I left my little small community and went to, went to college. And I didn't appreciate her influence, like I said, until I was older. I would get a degree and get another degree and another degree and another degree. And I would say, okay, Granny, this is for you. This one's for you. What's your grandmother's name? Georgia Hamilton, Georgia Ann Hamilton. Wow. Mm-hmm. And you're doing a lot of the same things that she's doing, you know, the power of storytelling. Oh, my gosh, she was the best storyteller ever. <laughs> oh, my goodness, she could tell a story. And I think that one of the things I learned from my grandmama 
is how to appreciate individuals, people, and love people. My grandmama loved people, and she could talk to anybody, you know. Um, but yeah, so that was that was my grandmama, you know. And I can also tell that she ignited a passion in you, and you ignite that same kind of passion in your students and also in the people that you work with. Right. So I know that she's really proud of you. One of the things I posted to Twitter, I do know how to do Twitter a little bit, but one of the things I posted when I was on a speaker panel at the American Academy of Nursing, and I said, Dear Granny, we made it from cotton fields of Georgia to tenured full professor to speaker at the American Academy of Nursing. Amazing journey. Yes. Amazing journey. Yes. I want to talk a little bit more about the database because okay. it's really exciting to me. Okay. So I'm glad you, it's exciting oh, to you. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> and so you said that you have people in there from 18 to, to 90. 90 years old. Are you noticing any differences in how the 18-year-olds are sort of connecting with their spirituality versus the 90-year-olds? I think one thing that I really noticed during those interviews, the oldest old didn't see a separation or distinction between religion and spirituality. If you were spiritual, you were in church. The younger generation, they see a distinction. I can be spiritual. I don't have to go to church. Well, that would have been a huge no to old, you know, if you grew up around older folk. When we were growing up, you went to church. I don't care what happened. You could be out till 3 o'clock Saturday night, but you're going to get up in the morning. You're going to Sunday school and church. Mm-hmm. Younger folk don't feel the necessity for that. They can have their beliefs apart from, from church. However, I will say this. For my younger folk that I interviewed, when their backs were up against the wall— That's what I'll say. And they had no way out, or they could think of no way out. They would think, this is a song my grandmama would have used. This, I remember my grandmama saying this. I remember my granddaddy saying this. I remember this older woman in church saying this. When their backs are up against the wall, they remember the times that they spent with grandmama and what she did. And the difference is, is for them, they can go online and Google and find the lyrics and find the song. And they'll put it to their own tempo. They'll sing it a different way, mm. but those lyrics are still there. Yeah. This is why I think that database is going to help so many people because they can access that when they need it to sort of summon that community if they don't, like right when they need it. Right. And see, I I think it's going to be helpful now because with people being so spread out now where they live and we're no longer in segregated communities. When I grew up, families lived in close proximity. And if you went to church, everybody that went to the church, the neighborhood church, there was a community. It's not like that anymore. And so I think younger folk don't have access to those stories like I did. It's not as convenient to them as it was for me. And so I'm hoping that this database can be used, can be housed in some of the stories, can be housed in churches, you know, so people going through a difficult situation, be it whatever, cancer, the loss of a loved one, and they can look at some of those those old, those stories in private. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I've even looked into how I can have a, a display, or what do you call it, at the Smithsonian? Mm-hmm. I've looked into that to see what the criteria 
Yeah. I think that as many people as can see it as possible would be so amazing. Yeah. Oh, and thank you so much for joining us. This has been an amazing experience being able to sit here and talk to you about your work. And I'm excited to, to dive into the database myself if when I have a chance. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. On the next episode of 2036, the podcast... I was taught when I was in radical school that heart disease, particularly coronary disease, is a man's disease. But I was seeing women in the clinic who were having chest pain. I was seeing women on the wards who were having heart attack, who were having myocardial infarction. And when I went to the literature, there was literally nothing about women. And then I went to the National Heart Institute, and I said, we really need to do something about this. Fortunately, I think I enrolled some people in my vision and asked the correct questions. And people began to look and realize that women are not just small men and that there are major differences that we now know today in the pathophysiology, in the clinical presentation, in the diagnostic tests, in the management, and in the outcomes. But even though we've come a good way on that journey, we're far from complete. Women remain understudied, they remain underdiagnosed, they remain undertreated, and their outcomes are not as good as those for their male peers. Join us for a conversation with Nanette K. Winger, professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology at Emory University School of Medicine and a nationally recognized expert on coronary heart disease in women. Listen on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about 2036, Emory's campaign to transform the future, visit 2036.emory.edu.